This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I am inspired today. I've been looking forward to talking to this beautiful soul for a couple days. I want to give a shout out to my brother, my spirit brother, Eric Brown, who is just continues to amaze me as a human being and also is just the ultimate connector for incredible folks walking on the planet. And also a shout out to you all over the world who listen and write in and support the show, the Patreons. Thank you. It's a beautiful community. keeps growing. Today, uh, I have the author of a wonderful book called To My Beloveds. Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope. It's an honor to finally welcome to the show, Reverend Jennifer Bailey. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. As we were beginning the conversation, I felt inspired to uh, ask you to maybe lead us in a little prayer, a little blessing to uh, launch us here. Mm, Thank you for that invitation. Let us pray. God of the past, present, and future, We give you thanks for this opportunity to gather as a global community, no matter when folks are listening or where. Divine Spirit, I ask that you would remind them and that they would feel through this conversation that they are loved and be loved and that nothing can separate them from that love, the love that we find and see in community, that we experience and taste in our encounters with with one another. So divine spirit, God, I just give you thanks. Thanks for this time. Thanks for the, the conversation that will flow and emerge. And thanks for each and every person who is listening under the sound of my voice. May they leave this conversation as I know I'm gonna leave this conversation stretched and with a clearer vision of what love and action looks like. Amen. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I could feel it. Well, before we get into the book and other things, I, I was just curious, how have you done over the last 18 months plus with COVID and in your position and also just on a personal level? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I, I um, did not expect to be pregnant during the pandemic, but <laughs> after um, several years of of trying to get pregnant. My husband and I found out that we were having a baby in January of 2020. Um, We got through that first trimester and having experienced pregnancy lost in the past, we're really, um, we're really sitting with and and wanting to be held by our close community, but hadn't been very public about, about the pregnancy yet. And it was the end of my first trimester. I was so ready to make my public Facebook post. And then we went into lockdown (laughs) here in Nashville. And so um, on the one hand, I have felt the deep collective and personal sorrow of loss that so many have been going through in this season, having close friends and, and family members who've lost people they loved through this pandemic and being proximate to their grieving process. And um, out of all loss, I think, can be a gift. And so one of the gifts of the pandemic for me was the ability to slow down and actually be home. Um, so much of my, my life and ministry and work over the past five years has been on the road. And so one of my deep yearnings had been for a long time, the ability to sort of nest and feel rooted um, in the home that I'm lovingly building with my partner. And so if, if there's one thing that'll keep you home when you're pregnant during a pandemic, <laughs> it's that. And so um, one of the great, the great gifts was the ability to be home, to, to nest, to strengthen my relationship with my partner, to, um, to prepare both spiritually and personally for the, the arrival of my son, Max, who was born in September, 2020, September 13th. And then we had this really sweet period uh, of the first few months of his life where we were just together as a family um, without some of the external pressures bearing down of of work and other commitments. And so I know that is precious time that I'll never have again. And um, that that precious time felt bittersweet, even as we were welcoming new life, this 
literal embodiment of radical hope um, that is my my beloved baby. Um, and knowing that that joy was experienced at the same time that so many people um, were experiencing such tremendous loss and grief. Um, so holding both of those two things has kind of been my experience of the last two, 18 months, um, last almost now two years, has been this holding of both deep joy and deep sorrow and how we, how we find ourselves um, seeking and finding community in the midst of all of it. Mm, that's so beautiful. And I'm reminded of the ever-present and ongoing eternal dichotomy of the human experience. It just seems there's always yin and yang here in polarity, both the glorious and the grievous, just no escaping it. In what you took from it slowing down, I, do you feel that there is a, a sort of maybe a Mother Earth message, a universal message from this microvirus uh, that as a species, we could slow, we should perhaps slow down and bring ourselves into alignment with nature, the earth, with each other and life? Mm, I think one of the things that is a lesson of this the season for me has been that deep commitment to life in a new way and uh, a deep and abiding appreciation for the interconnectedness of all living things. And what we know is that our world is sick right now. Um, the earth is sick and crying out um, in the form of climate disaster. I think here, at least in the United States, there is a a sickness that has always been present, but is flaring in this moment, um, rooted in a sense of deep fear about who we're becoming as a multiracial democracy. And the question of whether or not we're gonna stay a democracy is actually one that I think is live for us right now. Um, and at the core of how we move through, I, I sit very often with, this question from Mama Ruby Sales, who's a veteran of this Southern Freedom Movement, um, otherwise known as the Civil Rights Movement, who in an interview with Krista Tippett for On Being asked this question of where does it hurt? Um, and I, in my work at, at Faith Matters Network, the organization that I run and through a project that I co-founded called The People's Supper, I always pair that question of where does it hurt with what needs healing here as a second question. Because when I look at the world and I look at the earth groaning in this moment, there's so many places that at their core, people are experiencing or living hurt, right? Or reckoning with harm. Um, and the, the invitation to consider both what it might look like and feel like to experience healing whether that be in our interpersonal relationships or structurally or in um, finding ourselves in right relationship with um, the natural world, all of that sits um, next to a real deep inquiry and into the places of hurt that we maybe haven't seen before, um, those apocalyptic moments. And we know that in the Greek, apocalypse means to uncover. And so I really feel like we've been living at this moment of great uncovering over the past, that accelerated <laughs> uncovering over the past decade um, or so. And, you know, I'm 34, so I might say over the course of my lifetime, I've, I've seen these rapid moments of uncovering. Um, and what's being uncovered are some of these deep wounds that sit at the core of some of our, our brokenness and our inability to be in right relationship to one another and to the earth and all living things. And the question then becomes when you see those spirit places of, of brokenness or harm, how do we respond? Um, how do we respond in a space and from a place of deep love? Or, you know, I think a lot of us have seen people responding in ways that are less loving and more fear-driven. And, and so I say all that to say that I have never been more hopeful <laughs> about the future, which sounds like a, a crazy thing to say in the midst of a still um, raging global pandemic. But I also think that in the unmaking and the seeing of some of those wounds and ruptures, whether they be around questions of, you know, racial justice or how we 
um, include our, our beloved LGBTQ siblings into conversations about a full, what it means to, to live fully and see fully all things and all people as innately valuable because of who they are and created in the image of God, right? That we have some questions before us. Um, that is true in the US, but I think are, they're echoed in other parts of the world about who we're gonna be and how we be together in the 21st century. Um, and it is, it is um, true that we also have the ability to, to shape who we are and who we're gonna be together. Um, my fear is that, uh, when I do name my fears, is that people are gonna operate out of a space of hurt and harm, um, their own hurt and harm and fear to the exclusion of others rather than drawing the, the circle wider or inviting more people to the table. Wow, you nailed that. And what gives you hope? What evidence do you see, given our 400 plus years of history and the structure of white supremacy and the fact that it's still so strong, what makes you or what creates a belief in you that it will secede power and equality and allow a pluralistic democracy when I see everything tightening and going in the other direction quite dramatically and quite quickly? Yeah. The fact that I can look in the mirror <laughs> um, gives me hope. And what I mean by that is I recognize and I often introduce myself by like naming my matrilineal line that I am Jennifer, daughter of Christine, daughter of Harriet, daughter of Helen, daughter of Carrie, daughter of Sally, um, which is about as far back as I can and reach my own matrilineal line. But that takes me to, you know, the mid to late 1800s and that I come from this line of Black women who um, against the odds, not only survived in a country and, a, and in a world that was not designed for their flourishing, but to designed for their servitude. Um, not only did they, they live, but they flourished and they had full lives. And in many ways, there's a, there's a quote that's often quoted of being your ancestors' wildest dreams. And I, I know that I am. <laughs> um, and I hear the voices, I grew up in the, the AME church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, the oldest historically Black Protestant denomination in the world. And I can hear the voice of the church mothers in my church, these elder Black women who had survived um, the Jim and Jane Crow South, who had seen some of the worst of what this country has to offer. Um, I can hear their voice when I felt a sense of despair saying to me, just keep living, baby. Right, just keep living. And so it's hard for me like not to have hope. Um, and I was talking recently to a mentor, um, the Dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School, Emily Towns, who shared that what's the what's the alternative? The alternative to hope is despair. And I just don't come from people who have defined their lives by despair. And so you know, I, I have some real questions and inquiry about whether or not um, that uh, that sense of a social fabric or if we can lean into truly being um, a pluralistic society, if we can actually finally, finally live into the promise, at least here again in the United States of what it means to be a multiracial, multi-faith, democracy. Um, it's very clear that there are those who don't think that's possible. And so who are tightening onto their sense of power and control right now. Um, and I, what I know is that when we continue to hold too tightly onto that sense of control, we leave very little space for God to show up and surprise us or for spirit to breathe new life into our imagination. Um, and at the, at the worst, right, that has really deadly consequences um, for the lives and bodies, like physical violence, right, uh, of people. And I guess maybe it's, it's that radical hope that is born in me from um, coming from a lineage of people who hoped in the midst of it all, who um, made a way out of no way, as we say in the, the Black church, who um, who continued to choose hope over despair 
even in the midst of some really harsh circumstances, that it would feel unfaithful <laughs> to me um, to not continue on that legacy and try to move that legacy forward for the sake of, of my child, but also the next generation that is emerging now and who will help move us forward um, into whatever that vision of the world might be. Um, evil is real, right? Like I just, I actually, I, I do think that there, there is evil in the world that would have us turn against one another and destroy each other. And I can't help but hope that in the face of that evil, as has been true throughout human history, there will be those who are brave enough and courageous enough to stand up and speak a different truth, a more inclusive truth, um, uh, and, and share a vision and imagine together what communities grounded in an ethic of care and love can look like. So I am speaking to the embodiment of hope against all odds, multi-generational hope. This conversation stands in defiance of all that's come before. So I love that. I'm going to take that diamond and live with it. It's funny hearing what you just said. I was already thinking at the start of the show when you were even praying, I wanted to ask you, do you feel your ancestors, ones you maybe never knew, uh, working through you in this work as you move through the world? And I think you hinted at it in your other answer. I certainly do. I certainly do. You know, I think one of the things that I know to be true is that when I do the work myself in my own spiritual practice and attempt to move towards a space of healing, both personally and socially, I know that I'm also doing the work of healing my ancestors. And what I, what I know and what we know from science is that, especially um, for black and brown bodies, that trauma is literally is, um, transmitted in our DNA. And so I carry with me both um, the joys and hopes of those who've come before me, those I've known and those I haven't known. And I know that I carry a piece of their trauma with me. And so when we do, the invitation I, I would offer folks is that when we do the deep work, the vulnerable work of getting to the, those sources of our own core wounds and attempt to to heal through them and declare that we are going to do the work, whether that's through therapy or prayer or um, spiritual practice, connection to the earth, whatever that work is for you or the modality is for you, know that it's not selfish. You are both doing that work to heal um, those who've come before, those ancestors who've come before, and um, doing the work so that some of that pain, that trauma doesn't get transmitted to the next generation. I also, you know, as we're talking, it's interesting. I, I've done some of those DNA tests and um, as, as an African-American who is the direct descendant of slaves, there's a part of my DNA, about 20% that's white, right? Um, and I'll, I'll share that nobody in my family as far back as I know has self-identified as white, <laughs> right? And so, um, I remember there was a New York Times article, it's op-ed several years ago that talked about um, that part of, talked about Confederate monuments, but like actual, the actual Confederate monuments are these black folks <laughs> from the South, right? Um, who in our DNA um, carry both um, the, the experience and the lives and the truths of, of other black peoples from who were stolen from the West Coast of Africa, most of whom um, were stolen from the West Coast of Africa and the oppressor, right? And so this may feel, I'm, I don't think I've ever really thought about this. And so thank you, Paul. But even in doing um, that healing work for my ancestors, I'm also including in that some of the ancestors who um, are part of my, my at least direct lineage who were white, right? And who may have been, themselves oppressors who may have um, become part of my, my DNA history and lineage through violent means. Um, and they need healing too, <laughs> right? Um, and 
those those folks who are also descendants of those ancestors who I may never know, um, that there's a healing work to be done in them as well, as well. Because I've said this often, but like white supremacy to me is not just an ideology, but has become a theology in that um, folks have been enticed to worship um, this false god of white supremacy. This, and at its core, is about the core broken belief that one people could be better than other people, right? Um, and to buy into that, I have often said you have to like give up a little bit of your own soul, <laughs> right? Um, because it's about also then denying in the language of my faith tradition, the God presence in others. Um, and I understand from the, the origin text of my faith, Genesis, that we were all created in the image of the divine. And so in denying that some folks are made in the image of the divine or that you might be better than some folks because of the color of your skin, you're denying an opportunity to learn more about who God is <laughs> and denying an opportunity to have a broader understanding of what we might be called to do as human beings and stewards of this earth. And so I sit in that, that tension and I wonder like, there are parts of that work of helping um, in particular white folks um, sit with and wrestle with, um, the legacy of how whiteness as an ideology and as a theology has benefited them um, that feels like it's someone's work to do in somebody's ministry, but perhaps not mine. And <laughs> I think it is such deep, important work because I think people need to know that they're loved, not because of their ability to have power over um, others or dominate over others, but because they are, are beloved just for being who they are, that they have been created, right? And I think there's just a, a lot that we have as a, a country in the US to unpack around our obsession with tying a sense of worthiness into our ability to produce and our not just our ability to produce, but our ability to wield power over others because um, that just doesn't sync with my understanding and my tradition of the gospel right that doesn't sync with my understanding of of how we might find a way through um, to a greater vision of what what holistic community and thriving looks like and to deny the god in the other the divine, one has to first deny it in yourself. So the first act of harm is to your own self and soul before you can look upon another and remove the divine from them. And that is the ego. And that is a violent act, whether it's a human being, an animal or the earth, a redwood tree, or just in general, there has been hijacked theology. Now we have a very muscular Jesus who's on steroids in white with a machine gun might even have a red hat on and that's criminal in its own way that uh rather than try to live like the master they then incorporate them they pervert the master into their own image of their own uh pain body self and then project it outwardly and on the world but the, the harm goes within too there's that universal nature again, whether it's quantum physics or just metaphysics or just practicality, that uh, they're damaged. People that work in slaughterhouses have high suicide rates and domestic violence levels. It's not a coincidence. On a personal level, what has been your experience with racism as you've moved through the world and how do you feel it's changed you? I, I share a little about, about this in, in my, my book, but you know, the, the first time I was made to feel less than human because of the color of my skin, I was five years old on the playground of Adams Elementary School in Quincy, Illinois, which is where I grew up um, from the age of two until I turned 13. And I remember this little kid, um, Evan, saying to me that 
I must be dirty because why else would my skin be brown? And in my hometown, um, which when I was growing up there in the 1990s and early 2000s was about 90% white and 10% everybody else. <laughs> um, I had this real sense um, and like throughout the course of that year, um, the bullying escalated with eventually people um, teasing me and calling me the N-word for the first time. Um, it was the first time, and I learned at a very young age, that there was something that people saw about Blackness as innately inferior or problematic. And that was a lesson I learned um, at the age of five. And really, having done some of this work in my own spiritual practice and therapy, I have a late August birthday and started school in late August. So I had just like turned from four to five, like very, very young. Um, and so the impact of that, even though I had two parents who very much were shaped and formed in black communities, had lots of positive images, both in my household and in my, my community there of, of black folks thriving and in my church of um, blackness as sacred, even with all of that positive reinforcement around me, I still, for decades, had to tend to that core wound of feeling um, like I was inferior or not worthy um, and very much bought into that lie for a long time in my life. Um, and what's been healing for me, especially throughout my, my adolescence and into my 20s is being, being in community with other black, um, black and brown folks who had similar experiences growing up in predominantly white context and being able to name the lie, right? To name the lie that we, um, in fact, we're not inferior or less than, but that we, in the very, um, in our very embodiment, we're sacred and worthy of love. And, you know, I'm making that sound real deep, like, <laughs> but, you know, part of that was like being in conversation and community. And I, I went to college outside of Boston at Tufts University and found community at the Africana Center there. And it was the first time that I ended up living there one year in my college experience and like just being around other Black folk who were striving and asking similar questions. And it was everything from like the Bible studies that we would have um, in Cape and House that would then that same front room would turn into a place for sweaty parties <laughs> and um, spaces of, of connection in other ways, right? But there was a joy that I found in college and, and some in high school, because I went to a high school, I went to high school in Chicago, um, Whitney M. Young Magnet High School, um, one of the most diverse high schools in the country at the time I was there. Um, I think African-Americans or black folks were the majority at about 30%. So I think that speaks to just how diverse that space was. But there was something about the experiencing the deep joy of of blackness that was healing for me um, culturally and doing that in community with other young folks um, that served as a beautiful um, example and counterpoint to the lie that racism <laughs> had, uh, teaches us that we aren't, aren't worthy of that joy and hope and um, aspirational spirit of love that we wanna share. And so, there was a process for me of, and I think this is true of everyone, regardless of your background, but that so much of life is about both learning and unlearning. And I think, and I think um, you know, I've done as much work um, learning, unlearning things <laughs> as I have learning new things. And so continuing to, to open up our hearts and minds to the posture um, of humility um, to both receive knowledge and learning from others. And like part of the healing process, I think for so many of us is about letting go of those things that we um, were taught in our lives and particularly our youth that no longer serve us. And that rather than be that being a static one-time experience that I'm learning now in my mid thirties that that's gonna be a continual process I'm going through for the rest of my life.
I'm amazed that you could be this wise at such a young age. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure things out and I'm much older than you. Did you feel called to be in the ministry, like on a spiritual level? Did you have a metaphysical experience uh, or was it just this a decision early on? Did you know, how did you end up on the pulpit? Yeah. You know, I think one of the beautiful things about community um, is that people see things in you that you don't see in yourself. <laughs> and I think that's in particular, one of the gifts of intergenerational community and one of the great laments that I feel in this, this period of time we find ourselves in is that we are now more separated by generation than ever before, at least in the U.S. context, so that there isn't necessarily a whole lot of spaces in our society where you have people coming together across generation to be in community together. So for me, that space growing up was my church, Bethel AME Church. Um, and I was super active as, as a young person in my church. So I was like in youth choir and our youth group and did the Bible bowls and was often at church, you know, once or twice a week participating in activities. And I distinctly remember, and she would often remind me of this, um, Sister Catherine Weldon telling me um, at a young age, girl, you're going to preach someday. <laughs> and I mean, at the age of six or seven or whenever she told me that, like, I'm sure it went in one ear and out the other as I was like focused on whatever I was going to be focused on that Sunday, probably going into the kitchen to sneak an extra sweet roll. Um, but throughout the years, she would continue to remind me of that. And it was interesting when I was being ordained, uh, my first ordination, because in the Amy church, we have two my mom was helping me get dressed in my, my robe um, for the ceremony. And she said to me, you know, Sister Catherine has a message for you, which is that I, that I told you so. <laughs> and so um, I say all that to say, I think when it comes to me thinking about my own call to ministry, it was something that apparently was seated and present in me even before I could see it in myself. And that's one of the great gifts, I think, again, of community is that there are people in your life who can see things in you, um, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, <laughs> and, and call it out out of the wisdom of their lived experience. Um, Sister Catherine passed away earlier this year. Um, she was in her nineties at this point. And so I think about her very often as I think about my own call to ministry. And I'll also say that, you know, there were some very deep kind of metaphysical spiritual experiences I had throughout my, my teen years and into my twenties that solidified to me, um, that there was something going on in the spiritual realm that I was being called to. And I ran so hard from it, Paul. <laughs> I always am like super suspicious of people who like to actively run towards a call towards um, spiritual leadership without struggle um, because it is such a great responsibility um, to be entrusted with the care of souls. <laughs> um, and it is with deep humility that I took my ordination vows. Um, now, gosh, I was ordained in 2014. And so it's been seven years. Um, and one of the great gifts of the past seven years has been, even as somebody who has been in a, a position of, of ministerial uh, authority or spiritual leadership that I've learned that I'm at my best when I'm deeply human <laughs> in that space and recognize like when I am vulnerable, when I acknowledge that I am not more, um, I'm just as messed up as everybody else and have my own work to do. Even as an ordained person, I have made many mistakes <laughs> and have not always shown up in the way that I want to in relationships. I have hurt people and caused harm just as I have experienced harm. And I bring the gifts of my brokenness and a humility that I was just having a conversation with a mentor um, earlier this week who is in her fifties and has been in ministry for a long time that 
there's a difference between a humility that is born out of a false sense of thinking you need to um, deny <laughs> um, your gifts and graces, right? Like a false piety almost. And a humility is born out of like the reality that I have messed up time and time again and been welcomed back into community, which I would call grace. And so when I say I, I part of what I'm attempting to do is lead from a space of humility. It is a humility grounded in the reality that I have messed up. And like I said, I've, I've hurt people. I've, I've not been perfect, even in my ministerial capacity. Um, and that people have held me in grace and have welcomed me back and have helped me hold me to a space of accountability that has allowed me to be transformed. And so um, my hope for anybody who is wrestling with a call to spiritual leadership is that that openness um, to continue being transformed would be present for them. And I'd also, you know, encourage folks that spiritual leadership is not just the domain of clergy folks or folks who have been um, ordained by a religious body, but that spiritual leadership I've found comes in all ways, shapes, and forms. Some of the greatest spiritual teachers I've had were people like Sister Catherine, who never, <laughs> never sought to become clergy, but who was in her own right and her ability to see me a prophetess, right? <laughs> was able to see beyond the current circumstances into the of the world into a future. And so I I am grateful for for teachers and spiritual leaders who, um, for whom this is not just their profession or vocation, but who show up time and time again, helping tend to the spiritual needs within a community. Can you put words around your experience of God? And we, I have to say, I know that's an ineffable challenge because it transcends language, but you're very articulate and poetic in your prose. Is it possible to put into words your own personal experience of the divine, the transcendent? Thank you for that invitation. To me, God feels and is different. And I guess, I, I guess what I'm gonna say is that I've experienced the divine um, on the dance floor with my best friends when, um, when I've shaken off all sense of self-consciousness and just like gone for it dancing to Beyonce, right? That there's something of, that I've experienced of the divine and the transcendent in that moment of just being bare um, and feeling fully myself. I've experienced the divine and felt God's presence in the tears of grief and quiet moments by myself and the presence that I'm not alone in the midst of my grief. I've experienced God and the taste of my grandmother's sweet potato pie. <laughs> um, she passed away at the end of August. And so I know that I will spend the rest of my life longing for that sweet, sweet potato pie. I have seen God in the eyes of my child, who's now about to be 14 months old in his curiosity and wonder. I felt the presence of the divine among the rustling leaves and the trees when a breeze gently caresses my, my cheek. Um, to me, when I most open myself up to paying attention and fully experiencing the world around me when I am present, whether that be eating, that sweet potato pie <laughs> or dancing or taking a walk and feeling that breeze or really taking the time to look at my baby. It's in that experience of being present to the moment that I can tap into or feel a sense of the divine presence that is always there, um, is always present, but that I am guilty of sometimes being too distracted or in my own head or in myself so much that I can't or I don't, um, don't feel it because I'm not attentive to it. And so, you know, I think I, I, I feel a lot of parallels between spirituality and, and spiritual practitioners and leaders and healers and like artists and that so much of 
our work is about trying to give voice or name or shape to that which is unutterable, that which is mystery, and yet is also ever present. <laughs> and um, just, just a moment, a breath away. That was pretty good, considering it was an impossible ask. <laughs> and the artists, really, and the poets and the writers, they point towards it. And that's really what the masters, Buddha, Jesus, Krishna, Yogananda, Mary Magdalene, wherever, they're pointing towards the divine. And more, most often, it's pointing within you. And yes, you can see it through the Hubble telescope or at Radnor Lake or the bald eagle, or especially in the child. But uh, ultimately, if you can go within and find it, you can then see it everywhere. I like that Gene just said once, the kingdom of God is spread amongst the earth, but man does not see it. The kingdom has come, it's now. What was it like to have life grow within you and then see it come forth and now have it be this ever-evolving, ever-changing being that doesn't get enough sleep <laughs> for you? Yeah, um, man, what a tremendous gift and what a pain in the butt. <laughs> I'm like, parenthood I'm learning is going to be the consistent toggling between those things. Um, you know, so much of my experience of pregnancy, um, both during the pandemic and in general, was as the the daughter of a a mother who'd passed away four years prior. Um, and so part of my own journey into motherhood has been this rediscovery of my relationship with my mother, who Christine, who was, was my heart, was my compass. We were just so close and she was everything. Um, and so experiencing pregnancy without her was itself a reopening of, or a reattention to a grief journey that I'm still on. One of the, the gifts of reopening myself to, to feel that grief that I, because it was, the pain was so acute for the first couple of years, it was really hard for me to see it or to, to wade into it, has been this rediscovery of my mom, um, not just in her last days. And I had the great privilege of being one of her caretakers while she was home on hospice. And so was with her in the moment that she transitioned. Um, I think at the beginning of my grief journey, that was all I saw <laughs> and could, was the, the trauma of that moment, even as it was a beautiful moment. I, I think seeing my mom take her last breath was the only image of my mom that I could conjure for myself the first couple of years. But in being pregnant with Max, um, I started to remember what it was like to grow up with her and her laughter. And um, I started talking to her <laughs> more actively. Um, and I'm convinced to this day that like her and Max, even before he got here in the spiritual realm, we're having conversations because I see so much of her and him. Um, and so, yeah, I think the journey into motherhood and for that, that secret season carrying in my body two heartbeats and two souls and two, two minds, um, two bodies was so tender and sacred. And then he came and he is becoming his own person. And so one of the, the great gifts, um, and again, he doesn't get enough sleep, so that can be a pain, but is seeing him learn literally everything. <laughs> And so a friend asked me the other day about what parts of my own parenting I want to hold on to and lessons from my mom that I want to hold on to and what, um, what I want to release or, or try to not carry into my own parenting, those parts that are not serving me well. And so I think the part of my parenting, both my mom and my dad, who's wonderful, um, were, were tenacious in their belief that I was special and that I, not because of anything that I was could achieve, right, but because of who I was and were um, affirming of that, affirming of me, 
Um, and they were a part of a generation of black folks in the 1970s, in both their cases, the first and their immediate family to go to college who were ambitious and grinded really hard. And so um, whether or not they meant to, I don't think they meant to, um, the example I saw was of this striving um, and this constant working and constant um, trying to capture what they deemed as success or what they understood as success. And I think part of what I want to let go of as I'm thinking about how I want to parent my child with my partner is this notion that like your worth is not attached to what you do. <laughs> um, that success is not just what you were able to achieve in the professional realm, um, but that success is what you define it to be and that your value is innate in, in your humanness. Um, and again, I don't think my parents were consciously trying to like instill me with those values, but you absorb things as a kid. Um, and so that's been something I've been considering is like, what are some of the things that I wanna let go of um, from my own experience of being parented? And what are some of those things that I wanna hold tightly to um, that I view as, innately, not just valuable, but like helped me understand that I was loved. And I knew one of the greatest gifts my parents gave me is that I knew that I was loved, knew deeply in my soul that I was loved. Um, and that's what I want for Max is to know that he's loved just because, <laughs> not because of anything he does, but just because he is. Well, he will be with that sort of intentional groundwork laid in awareness coming in. I mean, that's incredible. I know I have to let you go because you're busy, but speaking of young life, if I took you back in a time machine and we met the younger you, I know, and don't judge her, but what words of wisdom would you give her now sitting here in your thirties as a mother, as somebody who is making their way, who's speaking up for truth and justice? Uh, it's such a struggle when you're younger. It's sad. We don't know things. And even with the greatest parents, you know, we're meant to kind of bounce around like a pinball and learn and have bruises, scars and whatnot. Uh, what would you tell her now if you could? And really that advice and those words of wisdom go out to all the young women around the world in many cultures. Perhaps it's a, there's a universal nature to it. If you want to give them your heart here as it's just really one-on-one. -on -one. I'm thinking about what version of, of Jen I want to go back to. Do I go back to like the 14 year old who is waiting in deep depression and having a sense of a suicidal ideation? Do I go to like the 22 year old who very much saw her worth as tied up again and what she would be able to accomplish um, or her perceived worth is tied up in, in her accomplishments? Do I go back to Jen? three years ago, who thought that <laughs> saying yes to everything <laughs> was, was the way, um, not realizing that loving boundaries are, are the key to a healthy life. Um, man, I think the Jen that I want to go back and have a conversation with though, is the Jen at 18, um, who was preparing to launch and, and leave home to go to college um, halfway across the country. And I think what I would say to her, if I could have tea with her um, in Chicago <laughs> on the lake, <laughs> looking out over Lake Michigan would be to breathe, to pace yourself that, that there will be those who attempt to pressure you to move fast and those who will attempt to cast you in their own image. Um, but that the true joy will be found in the moments where you slow down, where you pace yourself and allow yourself to fully experience the gift of the present, whether that be with friends or family. And when the moment gets tough and when um, 
the forces of anxiety or depression would seek to steal your imagination. Remember that divine love is as close as pausing and feeling the air in your lungs and breathing in and breathing out and knowing that you're not alone, that you're connected to all living things, that there is no shame for asking for help when you need it. <laughs> um, and that, in the words of those, those church mothers, just keep living, baby. <laughs> um, just keep living, even in the moments where it feels tough and that life does not feel worth it. Just keep living, just keep living and learning and loving and don't be afraid to let people in to both your most vulnerable self and your shadow self those parts that you may feel ashamed of. Not everybody, because not everyone is worthy to know all of you, but with those that you build with and who prove themselves to be loyal and loving and love you for who you are and not for what you do, sharing those pieces of yourself, sharing your burdens and your fears, um, your anxieties, will lessen the load that you're carrying. And being able to do that and exchange is the true meaning of love and friendship and relationship. And then, you know, I might um, give her some advice about um, particular boys to stay away from when <laughs> she got to college as well. Um, but, you know, that that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> You bless us with a uh, a closing blessing from your soul. Mm, thank you for that. May you in this journey always remember that the divine is only a breath away. That if you just pause long enough to experience it, the spirit of the living God who goes by many names is there. May you find love and communities that are worthy of holding all of the pieces of you. And may you have grace for yourself, holding your beauty and your imperfections, your shadow and your light together as a complete package that they are not pitted against one another, but are part of the holy divine presence that is your spirit on this earth. Amen. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.